Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Can I get you to state your full name? Stanley James Walker. And your service number? 4214446. And your date of birth? 31122. And your place of birth? Auckland. What part of Auckland? Ponsonby, I believe. Okay, yep. Tell me a little bit about your background. Did you obviously grew up in Auckland? Oh, yes. Yes, my parents were both English. My dad was from Bolton, Lancashire lad. Uh, my mother's uh, parents were from County Durham. Uh, my granddad on my mother's side came out in 18... 18- 84 uh, with his friend uh, they'd both married uh, cousin girls cousins and they were responding to the invitation that were given in those years 1870s 80s persuading young men and families to come out to the colonies yep. and so they came out to have a look at New Zealand decided this was the place and three years later, the families followed. Well, my mother, uh, my grandmother was pregnant when my granddad left home, and so he hadn't seen his daughter until she was about the age of three. But my dad had been, uh, his father had died in Bolton. He was working from the age of 12, uh, got fed up with that joined the Navy at 16, uh, spent time Mediterranean Navy in Malta, basically, and quite proud of the fact that he'd served under a German prince, Prince Louis Battenberg. They changed their name to Mount Batten in 1917. Came out of the Navy in 1906, uh, into the Merchant Navy, round the world, Second time in New Zealand, he thought this was the place, jumped ship in Wellington, and some years later met my my mum. Uh, then he wanted a shore job, of course, and my granddad was organist and choir master at St Matthews in the city. Uh, knew all the, the knobs in Auckland, along with them, Professor A.P.W. Thomas, uh, Chairman of the Grammar School's Board, and Mount Upper Grammar was being built. And Dad, through my granddad, got the job as the first caretaker of Mount Upper Grammar School. Right. So I lived on Mount Upper Grammar grounds, for my first 20 years, other than the times away with the war and so on. And uh, so I feel very close to Mount Albert Grammar. Still go with people like Russell Stone and so on, Professor. Uh, we go to our reunions four times a year. So I grew up there. Um, in those days you did matric, as we called it, uh, in the fifth form. 
and my granddad had persuaded me to be a reader. He gave me books all the time. I took it, took to it, and loved the music of the church and uh, carried on my reading. Enjoyed school, did pretty well. Fifth form at Mount Upper Grammar. Uh, got the trick. But I knew that people who were doing well in 3A, 4A, 5 spec as they called it, uh, would go on to the lower sixth and the upper sixth. That's as far as I was looking ahead. Suddenly, at the end of that fifth form year, my dad, who was a phlegmatic, typical Lancashire lad, we did have man-to-man -man talks or father and son talks, all of a sudden said, uh, what do you want to do? I thought, I'd like to go to pictures. No, what, what, what are you going to do when you leave school? No idea. I never thought about it. All I was expecting was two more years at grammar. But he pushed me. You must have some idea. Ooh, I think I want to be a teacher. You bloody fool. That's the only opposition I ever got. He saw me through university and so on. But I could see him and hear him. He didn't have the highest opinion of school teachers. <laughs> then I had to work out where did that come from? Because I, I he just it just came out. I put it down to two teachers. Harry Calder who taught history and John Tate who taught Latin. Two favourite subjects and two men who were more fatherly to me than my own father. I have nothing against my dad uh, but that was the way they grew up in Bolton. So went on to university and the things that control your life beyond your control when you apply for a course at university the, in those days the routine was that you presented your proposed course to the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and with his signature you were allowed in. I had become quite firm about being a teacher and I looked on English, maths, French as pretty good teaching subjects. Latin was there when I put in my application for university subjects. It would be English, maths, French, Latin. The Dean of the Faculty of Arts was a position that varied year by year. The different heads of the various departments became the Dean for that year. It so happened that in 1940, yes it was 1940, 
the Dean of the Faculty of Arts was the Classics Professor, C.G. Cooper, from St Andrews University, with Scottish accent. And he had a department which was probably already dying Latin and Greek. Of course, he spotted the Latin in my list, and I can hear him now. Is there any possibility, Mr. Walker, uh, that you would be majoring in Latin? And I think I said something like, I don't think so, sir. Um, French is, is stronger than my Latin, and I thought that the three there, English, maths and French, would be good teaching subjects. I used to be a teacher. Is there any possibility, Mr. Walker, that you might major in Latin? I got the message, I gave in, and I said, oh, yes, you require to do Greek 1. It's a prerequisite for Latin honours. That's how I ended up doing Greek. But it could have been any old head of department, it just happened to be Cooper. But, it turned out okay for me because doing the Greek I met uh, Ted Blakelock, Grammaticus in the Herald, did you know of him? Uh, a remarkable lecturer and very engaging. Well I did well in Greek 1, Greek 2, and he'd been a teacher at Mount of the Grammar before he became lecturer, so he sort of knew me there, and in, it would be November probably, of 1941, I got a phone call <clears throat> Professor Blakelock and his wife lived in Western Avenue in Mount Albert, quite handy to where I was living with my dad. And he said, we have work to do. You are going to come to me next Tuesday. You will buy yourself a Greek Testament and you come at nine o'clock. You'll do an hour for me, I'll do an hour for you. I didn't know what was going on, but I did as I was told. And off I go with my Greek Testament, over the hill on my bike, and uh, I did an hour, rather we, I think we, we did our, our Greek first. I sat facing my professor and translated St John's Gospel in Greek. The reason was that in these days of the University of New Zealand, he had the collating of marks for the classics and found that I was lying second in New Zealand for Greek. We've got to beat this girl in Wellington uh, for senior skull. Senior skull. Oxford. Possibly, you know. Anyway, 
not many people have that privilege. And I I got to know him, I liked him very much. And it was great. Anyway, that was of course November 41, December the 1st I was called up for the army. So the senior skull disappeared. But when I came back, I wasn't finished with Professor Blakelock. I still had a degree to finish, stage three of course. I realised I'd lost all my Greek, I only did two years. I had seven years of Latin, five at grammar and two more at university. So I went for a single subject major. But I saw him, of course, he was then, he'd taken over from Cooper, he was now the full professor. And uh, he knew that, well, I did pretty well, uh, 46, 47, finished my MA, uh, and he appointed me the rehab tutor in classics uh, for these, particularly these poor lawyers who were still trying to get Latin 1 to finish their law degree. Uh, and I got to know Joe Buddle that way. Um, as well as that, he had me lecturing part-time uh, for Latin 2. Because of that, and because of having joined the Dorian Choir after being uh, very happy with the music at Teachers College in 1948, uh, I wanted to stay in Auckland, but I couldn't get a, a job. Nothing in the Gazette. I made inquiries with Takapuna Grammar and others, but no hope. And Professor knew about this, uh, and he kept asking me, any, any luck? No. Comes the end of November, I presume, and called me into the office. Any luck with your Auckland job? No. How would you like to teach at King's College? That would be very good. King's College, of course, private school, wasn't in the Gazette. But he knew that he was going to appoint Derek Lewis, Rhodes Scholar, from King's College to the lectureship that he'd applied for. So he knew that Greenbank would require someone like me. If you like, I'll read Mr. Greenbank and recommend you. Thank you very much. So Blakelock got me my first job at King's. I enjoyed it, but I was only there for two years. Derek Lewis's wife passed away. He was left with two boys and he wasn't enjoying university. After the full-time master, housemaster's job and cricket coach and what have you at King's, he was in his little cubby hole, uh, 10 hours lecturing a week or something like that. And he didn't like it, particularly with the loss of his wife. So he rang Greenbank and asked for his job back. 
and I was shown the door. Quite a simple matter really, he, uh, Greenbank, after promising me a, a house, um, I was travelling every day from Mount Roskill to Kings, uh, told me that the house had gone to somebody else and also that I was not going to get the salary for my promotion that had come through my university years and so on. I should have gone into grade two. We will require to keep you in grade one. So preaching on a Sunday, breaking his word to me on Monday. However, so it meant that I had to look for another job. Into the Gazette. I couldn't believe what I read. This was the end of 1950. Most of the language jobs were French, sometimes with Latin. But this was Latin and or French. I had French in my degree, a major in Latin. Tennis and soccer, an added recommendation. They'd heard about me. It was incredible. I still can't believe it. I wish I'd torn the page out. I got the job, Otago Boys High School. Ted Aim was the man. And I loved it. By that time, Marjorie and I, I was engaged to Marjorie before I went away overseas. We were married in 1946. But she had not travelled. But off we went to Dunedin. And I thoroughly enjoyed the school, wonderful old school. But we had a third boy born down there. He had pneumonia at five months. My wife's asthma was bad. The doctor said, you've got to get your family out of Dunedin. So I had to give that job away. Two in a row, not my fault. Up to Tauranga College, from the Gazette again. Tauranga sounded right for sunshine and healthy family and what have you. So off we go to Tauranga, after two years only in Dunedin. And of course we fell in love with Tauranga. Arthur Nicholson was the headmaster, ex-Orchid Grammar, conservative. I got on very well with him. I had a classics program at Dunedin, but at Tauranga, it was English, French, Latin, phys ed, etc., maths, and so on. But I loved the school, and the boys thoroughly enjoyed the swimming and the beaches and what have you. 
and Marjorie's asthma settled down and so we thought we'd be there for maybe the rest of our lives so I had a Beasley house built in Greerton but then the school was growing too fast and they had to split the school I think we had accommodation for 650 and I think the school at the old Hillsdean uh, College co-ed of course uh, the roll had gone up to about 1100 so the split came my head of department uh, the language department uh, Ivan Bogey uh, took a position at Pataru as deputy principal that left me as acting head of languages. I had a word with Arthur Nicholson, our head, and he said, pointed out that nearly all the PR units, as they called them, for the heads of departments, were held by men. When the school split, all the ladies, the senior ladies, would be smiling because they would go up to head of department, whereas the men would find that their PR units would be depressed because the number of units depended on the school role and the role would halve. He could only promise me a paid position in five or ten years. By that time, because Marjorie wanted a daughter, we had a family of five, four boys, and finally the girl came along. I couldn't stay there under those circumstances. So my third job disappeared. I took a head, uh, head of department position at Hamilton Boys and I was there for four years. We had four years in Tauranga, four in Hamilton. But of course, Tauranga had spoiled us for Hamilton. Yeah. Climate, the beaches, etc. And Marjorie's mother and two sisters were wanting her to come back home in Auckland. So after four years at Hamilton, uh, and I liked the school very much. Um, I applied for Selwyn College, got that one, as head of department under another ex-Auckland grammar man, um, Pitt, uh, Nata Pitt Caithley, and I was there for 21 years, finished my time in 81. So I've been retired now 36 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my superannuation out of it. <laughs> so uh, can I take you back to the war? Tell me about when you went into the army, when you got your call up and, and tell that story. Well, uh, that was... I turned 18 in 1940 
but I didn't get my call up until the 1st of December 41 into Avondale Racecourse, which had been turned into an army camp for CMT, the military training. Went in there on the 1st of December, uh, basic training, lots of square bashing as they called it. December the 7th of course was Pearl Harbour. On the morning of the 8th we had the information given us, you are now in the army not for three months training, you are in for the duration of the war. That did not appeal to me one little bit. I had my Air Force application form made out in 1940 when I turned 18, expecting the Army call-up. But my old man, Lancashire lad, wouldn't sign my papers. For air crew under 21, it was voluntary, and you had to have parents OK. He said, I was in the last one, you get back to university. But on the, on the 8th of December, from Avondale, I jumped the fence, went AWOL, got myself home quite conveniently to Mount Albert Grammar, told my dad the story, got my papers out and he signed them and promised he would post them. Okay. I was in the army for the whole of 1942, almost, till late in November, when we had switched with the Hauraki's and were in another race course, Grierton. And it happened that, oh, we'd been through the third div manoeuvres up in the Kaimais, and after that, we were back to Grierton and I was with my section or maybe part of the company at the rifle range in Papamoa which had very few houses and so on in those days farmland and so on very much changed and while there uh, doing rifle range work I got the call the Donar, the man on the motorbike, had turned up and the instruction was private walk of return to headquarters and I was faced with my transfer to the Air Force and I went down to Levin. Uh, there along with the other recruits, um, mainly of course going straight into Air Force. Uh, we did some square bashing. I had enough of that in the army. Then I was sent up to ADU, the Air Drone Defence Unit, uh, two purposes. 
we did uh, sentry duty and so on for our coastal command uh, airport at Waipapa Kauri but on on along with that we had to do the 18 assignments was it 18? 21 21 assignments or something like that which were the prerequisite for um, training for aircrew so we did a lot of army work up there because our RSM X Scottish Army had us doing army stuff rather than doing education. The education officer uh, didn't see that much of us and we were going very very slowly through the assignments until suddenly uh, there was a shortage of aircrew uh, recruits apparently because we suddenly got the education officer almost full time while we got up from assignment 4 to 21. Uh, that sort of thing of course was inevitable I suppose but suddenly we found that uh, we'd done the assignments and I was looking forward to Rotorua, the ITW, initial training they called it. Um, but I'd only got 90% or something like that in the exam. And uh, I was sent to the ADU at Bell Block, while others were sent to directly to Rotorua. No good asking why. In uniform you did as you were told. So I was at Bell Block, I think, for about a month. Then finally, uh, Rotorua. So before you go on with Rotorua, when you were up at Waipapakauri, which was an operational station yes. with, with the uh, with the wildebeests and Vincent's, wasn't it? That's right. Did did you have much to do with the squadron there? Did you ever mix with the people no. from the squadron? You were kept completely we, we separate. We were quite separate. Wow. What did you think of the aircraft though? Oh, <laughs> oh the first vertical takeoff aircraft with, with a good wind, a westerly coming off 90 mile beach. They literally went, went like that, the Vincent and the Wildebeest. And they do the same sort of landing. Past that, our, our front line coastal command. But uh, yeah, that was the first real aircraft as it were. You guys in the ADU that were knowing that you were going to become aircrew and you're looking at those old aircraft, were you keen to get into them or were you, or were you thinking, boy I hope they're updated by the time I oh, get Oh well, no, I, no, we didn't look at it that way. Uh, I was still looking for Lancaster, you know. Um, that would be, hopefully, yeah, we expected, well I, I didn't, did I know then? No, I didn't know until I got to ITW, that's right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, it was only at ITW where they put you through physical, psychological, medical checks to see if you were okay for aircrew. 
second thing, are you suitable as a pilot? That's what you want to be. Uh, that I didn't know until I'd finished at Rotorua that I was assigned to Maltese. So they chose fighter boys and bomber boys. Uh, so I didn't really look on uh, the Wildebeest or Vincent as a likely aircraft for me. But I knew about Tiger Moths hopefully coming up and uh, if I made it as a pilot. So at, when you were at Waipapakauri, where did you live? Because it was a... It was we a had little Arby huts, two med huts. I have photos of those. Right. And they were spread about through the... Uh, Waipapakauri is a small aerodrome. Uh, there were little hills around and particularly because of the... Japanese being in the war, uh, these huts of ours were spread out in the Monica or whatever there was lying around in the uh, perimeter of the airfield. Was there much in the way of facilities on the on the airfield for the aircraft or for the men? Or I mean, I know that they had they had a hangar which had been converted from an old fish factory or something. Something like that, yes. And they had... Um, they had We'd the taken over the hospital at Waipapakauri. And that had been the pub, hadn't it? That had been the pub, yep. that's right. That's right. Uh, I meant to say we'd taken over the pub as our hospital. Because I, I seem to recall one end of it was the officer's mess and then the rest was the hospital or something like that. Uh, I never saw the officer's mess, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I was just ADU. Yes. Irk. Um, yes. I know that when I became unhappy after our injection, we had a vaccination, I think it was, and it hit me badly, I had to go on sick parade and that meant that you had to march to the hospital right round the airport <laughs> on sick parade. Those were the days. <laughs> was it an enjoyable place to live at Waipapakari? Or was it a horrible place to live? Oh. Well, horrible when the Sergeant Major was pushing us through the mud and what have you. Um, but a warm climate, of course. So every now and then they'd march us over to 90 Mile Beach and we'd have a swim. Then they'd march us back and we were hotter when we got back than when we started. Um, not too bad. I had my 21st birthday there. The, the night of my 21st birthday, I was with a rifle on my shoulder going backwards and forwards outside the, um, or what do they call them, where they kept the ammunition and so on, yeah. and the bombs that the Vincents used to fly with. Uh, I was engaged by that time and my, my fiancée 
wrote me a nice letter for my birthday and told me what a lovely party they had for, for me. <laughs> and, and one last question about Waipapakari. For you guys in the ADU and also for the, the lower-ranked guys on the squadron that lived there too, um, was there any sort of recreational thing? Was there a YMCA or canteen or anything like that? Or was it you just had to make your own I can't, can't remember any YM there at all. Um, on leave, you just go into Kaitaia. But, uh, no, very little for the poor old ADU. That was it. Uh, Bell Block would have been a bit more comfortable, I guess. Oh, yes, yes. Were you in huts there too? Uh, huts, as I recall, yes. And then Rotorua, you went into hotels, didn't you? Brent's. I was in Brent's hotel. The best. Two. Two-man room. And that's where we had to do our uh, various tests. And the one that almost upset me was the test they put us through the um, the pressure. Right. What is do they a, call it? Is it barometric training or something? Barometric training? It had a, had wait, a particular wait, name. It won't come yeah. to me. It's it's for the um the altitude altitude sickness. altitude test. Yeah. Yes. Well, this was midwinter. Uh, by the time I got there, it was. June, I think, and for our education uh, side of our work, we used to march round Rotorua to various places, halls, and so on for the different subjects. Middle of winter, I got a cold. It got worse. I'm called up for my pressure check. I knew it was important. They took us up to 5,000 feet and we came down again to see if we could clear our Eustachian tubes. I knew mine hadn't cleared. However hard I was, I was working on my nose and so on, my ears hadn't cleared. I wasn't going to admit it. That would put me out of aircrew. So I went up to 20,000 feet and the pain came down, have your ears cleared? Yes, I still had the pain, they hadn't cleared. So I lied my way through that one, got back to Brent's. It was still, un hadn't cleared by the time I went to bed. 
I gave it one last, one last pop, blood from one ear. I, I, I'd taken a risk. Went off sick parade next morning, of course, and uh, by that time they'd cleared. But I took a bit of a risk, but I got through. <laughs> so then down to Ashburton, as I say, in the middle of winter, I've got a great photo of me in my outfit for the tiger moth, you know, leather and Ashburton, huts again, under the pine trees, snow on the ground, and at last the tiger moth. Loved it. And is that okay? Tell me about your first flight. Oh well. <laughs> it went well. I was enjoying it. Apparently I was a fairly natural pilot and I had a great instructor. Um, he always wore a silk scarf. <laughs> Fighter pilot. Forgotten his name, I used to know it so well. It'll be here in your logbook, won't it? It will be in the logbook, yeah. Was it Banks? No. Oh, Riddell. Um, Riddell. Riddell. Yes, Riddell. Was that, um, was that John Riddell? Uh, I never ran into him or heard of him since. Right. He went off into uh, operations, I believe. Into fighters? But where, I don't yeah. know, I don't know was, where. There was a John Riddell. He died about two years ago. He was here in Auckland. John um, Riddell. He, he, I think he was an instructor and then he went on to Kitty Hawks. Gone. Probably the same guy. Pity about that, I should have mm. got to know him. Yeah. Yes, well, that was totally. I remember every now and then I'd be working away at something and uh, he'd say, I have the aircraft, and off we'd go. He'd spotted a, a hare in a paddock or something, and he'd do steep turns around. Um, there they had the old ditches and hawthorn hedge and if you flew round a, a particular paddock you could see the hares coming out of the ditches and so he'd then do a steep turn down and you could hear the I could hear the wingtip hitting the grass no, no, no kidding. And he was after a hare. And at the flight rooms, that there were the different flights there, very com competitive. And you'd see a, a hare uh, nailed up on the flight. <laughs> so all the instructors were doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I remember. Oh. Well, you had to have sympathy. These had three or four pupils. Had to put them through this routine 
get bored stiff. And suddenly he'd say, I have the aircraft, you know. And we'd go straight at a line of trees. Then he'd do that. What <laughs> one gap in the line of trees. Yeah, you're lucky to get through that lot. Start restarting the engine in flight. That was fun. I don't know what height they got. But then they'd stall the aircraft. And then you had to stall, do it again, something else, to kill the, the engine. And so there you're sitting with a dead prop. And then he, he'd be doing a, a commentary all the time, you know, thoroughly enjoying it. And then he'd do a way and straight down. And he, he'd, he'd make sure that you know, get, get the tick tick. Dick, dick. Get a, yes, it finally got going, but he made sure that you're almost at ground level before you <laughs> before you finally came out of the dive. Wonderful. <laughs> and I guess the students must have had absolute confidence in the instructors, but the instructors in real realistically had only probably only been there for a year or something right. they were they were young cowboys just like you yes, guys so. of course yeah but i mean brudel had already already had a reputation you know very popular i was the envy or two or three of us uh his pupils were the envy of all the other boys so uh, it was great well and then at the end of that you had your fingers crossed because half the trainees, not only pilots were navigators, air gunners and what have you, uh, once qualified, half would stay in New Zealand to complete their training and go up to the islands. The Japs were well installed by that time. The other half Canada, England. So you know which one was popular. I was lucky, I got the overseas one. And when would that be? October, probably 43, uh, off to Canada. Brandon, Manitoba, number 12 SFTS, Service Flying School, Cessna Crane, it was the Cessna Bobcat, um, built for passengers and luggage, short flight, two big Jacobs engines, you could get away with anything overpowered for just one or two bods so thoroughly enjoyed all that uh, to the extent that I topped the course 43 Kiwis and the other bonus was that number two was Bruce Miller friend of mine that meant up a grabber. Right. 
two men up at Grammar Boys. We let them all know it. But then suddenly, oh, we're all waiting now, the course is over, we're waiting for our posting to UK. When suddenly four names go up on the board, the top four posted to number one GR school, Summerside, Prince Edward Island. Why? <laughs> Story was that we were posted to Coastal Command and Coastal Command had a requirement that all pilots should have a navigator's ticket for long 10-hour flights or something like that. Two or three pilots, one navigator. So the pilots, they worked out that a pilot should be able to relieve the navigator. So we were stuck in Canada for another three months. We did the navigator's course, which was normally seven months. We did it at three and three at Summerside. Heavy going. Eleven topics, meteorology, etc., etc. Um, not only aircraft recognition, but naval recognition. We had to recognise the, be able to uh, recognise the ships of the seven major navies. They all looked alike to me. Anyway. We got through that. While I was there, I remember lying on my bunk, listening to Richard Dimbleby of the BBC describing the D-Day landings, 1944. And I still haven't got the UK. But got there, I think in, it was July, uh, the four of us went off. Just before you go on to the UK, what was life like on Prince Edward Island? You know, when you got off the station, was there towns there? Were there people around? Uh, we weren't far from, there wasn't much in Summerside, but the capital of PEI was Charlottetown. And we only had one leave in the middle of the course. Otherwise we were just stuck on station. But we had a very good leave. And uh, I used to love dancing. <coughs> Started at a Mount of a Ground on a Friday evening. So I met this girl in Charlottetown and uh, when we said goodbye we danced a lot I go back to I promised that I would try to get leave but I knew we knew that was our one and only so a couple of weeks later, 
I organised the boys to cover for me and I get onto the bus for Charlottetown walking to my seat my number one instructor is sitting there <laughs> we not <laughs> we nodded to each other <laughs> I enjoyed my weekend in Charlottetown and one of the I was going to be wiped got back not a word was said and I remember being interviewed by the squadron leader at Padgate in England after we'd just been put there before our AFU, F advanced flying and we were each interviewed by this squadron leader chap and he had my folder there I'd done pretty well all the way through and he took the folder you deserve to see this and he handed me the folder that I was not supposed to see first thing I looked up was the report of that man <laughs> from PEI not a not a difficult word in so he knew I was keyed I think and that's the second time I broke regulations in the army I went AWOL and in this one I went in the Air Force I went AWOL however had you seen much of Canada uh, when you were on mainland Canada uh, you know there were, with the cranes um, Oh, we flew around quite a bit. Um, there were cross countries. Um, I think one of them took us almost to Portage on the old railway line. And mm -hmm. um, we flew north a bit. This branded, of course, in the middle of the prairie. Yeah. Snow, very dull. But uh, not much in the way of variety. Did you get out and see the people, meet people there? Winnipeg went on leave, uh, several leaves, particularly uh, we had a half of us got Christmas leave, the other half got New Year leave. That was five days or something like that. But there was very, very little in Brandon. Winnipeg was quite handy. So our Winnipeg was the place for leave. And before we went, we were well treated in Canada. I mean, the food and the, the wafts waiting on us and that sort of thing. Uh, comfortable barracks, not huts sheets on our bed etc um, and before we went on leave 
we were advised to go to the USO, United Services Organization, and there they got us uh, hospitality. I teamed up in Brandon with Ron Morris and he and I went to on leave together and at the USO uh, we asked for hospitality, accommodation, before a couple of nights I suppose, first short leave and whoever it was made a phone call and I was given the address 153 Inkster Boulevard North Main trams in Winnipeg so we hop on the tram and off we go uh, 153 Inkster Boulevard just an ordinary two-story with a, that sort of roof for the snow uh, they all look much the same a very ordinary house a Musker family um, three, three kids uh, Pop Musker was a taxi driver in the winter and a rodent operator a, a rat catcher in the summer. Anyway, Ma Musker was a wonderful cook. We were made very comfortable. Great experience. Uh, the kids, Ev, the eldest daughter, um, in her twenties, uh, a seventeen-year-old boy, and a twelve-year-old boy. As I said, I loved dancing, and so did Ev. So our, that's how my leaves went. That's about all I saw of Canada. Um, while in Brandon, we saw Winnipeg. And while we we're in Summerside, of course, and Prince Edward, we saw a bit of Charlottetown. Right. I saw more than most. And you were saying you went to New York as well? Uh, that's right. There were the four of us um, in Navigator's course. Uh, when we went back to Montreal, on our way to UK, we were given a week's leave, and Ken Jensen and I decided we'd go to New York. Uh, wonderful opportunity. The New Zealand Forces Club had been started by Nola Luxford, and they gave us accommodation, uh, invitations for a visit to a I remember a millionaire's mansion or apartment overlooking um, Central Park. But the major thing was free tickets to every show 
in town. I was first very disappointed. There were two shows I wanted, Metropolitan Opera and Porgy and Bess. They were both closed. It's midsummer. June. The only suitable leave uniform was our clothing was our number one uniform, which is very warm. And it was very warm in New York. As we walked the streets we'd duck into any big building that had air conditioning. But missing out on the Met and Porgy and Bess. To make up for that we saw Oklahoma, the original, Rod Steiger I'd never heard of, he took Judd Fry, Arsenic and Old Lace, the original, which then became a film with the same sisters, uh, The New Moon at the Radio City Music Hall, Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe, wonderful, all, all free. But the one that made up for my loss was Othello at the Schubert Theatre, little famous Shakespearean theatre, with Paul Robeson playing Othello. I loved Paul Robeson, his voice. I'd heard him not only singing, as he mostly did, but also he made a recording of poetry, a beautiful speaking voice. Well, there was Othello. I'm sitting in about the second row, and here's this magnificent man with a superb voice, and Iago, the villain who can steal each scene, was Jose Ferrer. I'd never heard of him. He made those films after the war. Paul Robeson, Jose Ferrer, and Ona Munson. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I can remember that. <laughs> Wonderful. So that was our week in New York. Back to, to uh, Montreal and off to UK. The boat that took us from Wellington to San Francisco was the New Amsterdam. 35,000 tons, I think, the biggest in those days. Uh, the top of the Dutch fleet. We go down to Halifax to go to UK New Amsterdam again. Off we go uh, again as we did from Wellington. You didn't go to Fiji, you avoided the Jap subs by going east and then north to stay away from the usual shipping routes. The same thing out of Halifax. We went very far north, very cold. We couldn't have been far from Greenland, Iceland, 
and so on and came round the north of Ireland and into the Clyde, Gurk, Greenock. Crowded, but we were now officers uh, and the food and so on was a bit better than it had been on the trip across the Pacific. So into the Clyde and our usual reception centre was, was on the south coast. Brighton. Brighton, thank you. <laughs> Brighton, all the bees. Yeah. Yes, but the story was this was right on the south coast and that coast was a target for German fighters doing a beat up. So they changed the reception centre to Padgate, Lancashire. That suited be fine. Accommodation was pretty poor. Uh, barracks compared with what we had in Canada. And the food was, you know, mash etc. But the, uh, the bonus from the depressing everything at Padgate was that this is Lancashire and I'm not far from home as it were. So on the first decent leave I teamed up with a Canadian chap, Rocky Crow, and we took, it would be about four buses, you can go everywhere, Land's End to John O'Groats, uh, you can go by bus. So from Padgate to Warrington I think, Warrington to Wigan, Wigan to Four Lane Ends uh, to West Outen, which is a suburb of Bolton. And it was the one address I had. My dad's elder sister um, and her hubby lived in West Outen. And so I was able to take the my haversack, which had chocolate and fancy soap and so on, we'd been advised before we left Montreal. If you've got relatives in England, as so many had, uh, they're short of this, this, this and this. And so I'd done that, done my bit of shopping, and on the way over we had two meals a day on the Amsterdam, but they had fruit and Mickeys and so on to take away for our lunch. And so I'd got a stack of uh, oranges, biscuits, whatever. And this was all in my haversack when I turned up on my aunt's doorstep. The first one they'd seen of the family back from New Zealand. 
So, interesting leaves. Uh, when we got the long leave, uh, I went up to Stockton on Tees, where I had, again, one address uh, from my mother's family. And there was a, an incredible coincidence. When I got the taxi, <clears throat> not much money, but I had to take a taxi. I had the address of Albert Philpot because my mum decided I should see my grandfather's family before I saw my grandmother's family. I had this address and it was in a, a housing estate. The taxi driver knew the estate, but he didn't know the street. So off we go into this housing estate where all the houses looked alike and all the streets were bent and we were wandering around. All we were doing is looking for a, a sign. I saw the meter going round and I decided next person I see I'm going to ask. We're doing a slight round turn to the right, I still remember, and I see this elderly lady standing at her gate. I said, driver, stop the car please. I get out, I'm in full uniform of course, walk towards her, she started to smile. When I stood up on the pavement, she said, Stanley. This was my grandmother's younger sister, Aunt Catherine, Kate. My mother arrived in New Zealand at the age of three. For the rest of her life, she corresponded with two girl cousins, one on her father's side, one on her mother's side. She told both of these girls that I was on my way. They wouldn't know the dates, but I was going to be there. I still kick myself that I never asked my Aunt Kate why she went out to the gate. Wow. Unbelievable, isn't it? She knew where this Albert Philpot was. So the taxi took me there. I stayed with him and his wife. 
But of course I have to go back to Kate Speechley uh, and meet the other girl cousin. And that was Betty Kennan, that's right, Betty Kennan. Uh, and when I went back and picked up my aunt, great aunt, uh, and she took me to visit Betty Kennan, uh, I'm chatting with Betty, and she asked me where I was in. I was down in Gloucestershire, South Cerny. She said, You're not. I said, Yes. Her husband was at South Sydney. England had hundreds of airdromes, but her husband, who'd run a gentleman's outfitters in Stockton on Tees, he was now in administration, South Cerny, the headquarters of Training Command. So I go down there and meet him. And we used to go out on the bikes in the evening. Incredible. Isn't it? Frank Kennan. And the ten-year-old boy also. They had a boy and three daughters. But this Frank Kennan has been out and stayed with me. Their son, Gary, came out to Australia. And I've stayed with them in Sydney. But, uh, well, that, that meeting that elderly lady, incredible. The timing was dictated by the taxi meter. And why had she gone out to the... I don't know why, I never got around to asking her what took her out there. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it was meant to be. <laughs> So Surrey, uh, I did enjoy it, uh, loved the English countryside, broke the rules once or twice going out to South Wales and over the Seven Channel and so on. Um, what were you flying there? Oh this was the airspeed Oxford and we had the warning, don't try you chaps from Canada. Don't try in the Oxford what you got away with in the crane. The Oxford was underpowered. It had a wicked stall. It's spin you couldn't get out of. Um, they'd found pilots in crashed aircraft and the pilot was in the tail of the fuselage. To get from the pilot's seat to the door, you've got to get out and get to the door, centrifugal force thrown into the tail and you couldn't get back. So what they had done, you had the reminder every time you got into a, an ox, a heavy rope with a knot every couple of feet was tied to the base of the pilot's seat and it was long enough to get down to the base 
to the rear of the fuselage. So if you went into a spin, you gave up, tried to get out of it, you grabbed the rope and let yourself back to the door. Wow. A reminder every time you got in. Well, I came, I remember, <laughs> you get bored with all the stuff you have to go through. And one of the other pilots and I had had an understanding that if we were flying solo, getting toward the end of the course, uh, we'd do a bit of dogfighting, you know. So I'm doing this one day and did a steep turn and with a, with a bump. Straight and level. Sent him away. Straightening, something not quite right. But I couldn't see anything wrong. But, well, give up, go back. Told him, I'm coming in, something happened, the aircraft doesn't feel right, something like that. Got back, and we were at Fairfield. Anyway, I'm coming back. And I came in doing a sort of forced landing idea, coming in at a good speed. The 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 fire <laughs> the fire engine and so on had gone to the end of the runway. And I come in and landed okay. Get round, but I'd reported in that there was something wrong with the aircraft, and uh, my instructor came out, stay where you are, you know, and walked around the aircraft. And then, come on, as I was getting out, he said, What speed did you land at? I told him, I can't remember what it was, you know, 30 over the usual. Yeah. And he said, you should have come in at something higher than that. What had happened was, the, there was a, the rear of the engine, there was a cover for the oil, whatever. And it had come off and gone through the wing. And it was a, hold something like that in the wing that I couldn't see because of the nacelle of the engine and that was on the other side. So I was told off, could have been court-martialed I suppose, but I, I didn't admit that I'd been steep to it, turning. don't know how that happened. <laughs> so you get away with it. So, end of the, that was AFU, and waiting for a posting, and suddenly I find I'm posted to West Africa. 
How did that happen? And then I got the information about 490 Squadron. I had no idea. Right. Never heard of it. West Africa. But you did as you were told. So that meant going up to West Kirby. Uh, West Kirby is outside Liverpool. Uh, an Air Force reception centre and uh, I took ferry across the Mersey. It's the other side of the Mersey from Liverpool. Ferry across the Mersey, I remember that. And there was a new ship, the Andes. So out from Liverpool to Freetown about a three or four day trip I suppose I can't remember exactly it's in my diary um, very rough for a start Bay of Biscay and so on and then into into Freetown so then up to Dewey, 26 miles I think it was, up the River Bunce. Did you go by river? Did you have to go by river? By river, yeah. Hmm. Yes, went by boat. Oh, no, I, no, I can't be sure. It'd be in, the, be in the diary. More likely transport. Had to be on the river, of course, for the boats. And Dewey, not a very pleasant spot. Swampy, quite good accommodation. Uh, I was with my skipper for a start. And then, for some reason, we switched to, oh, that's right, Johnny Greer. Um, Johnny Greer, the navigator and my crew, was a sergeant or flight sergeant, something like that. And he was commissioned. After I arrived, he got a commission. So that meant he was moved to the officer's quarters, and I used that as a I didn't get on too well with the skipper. Right. R.H.L. Patterson, laughing boy, very unpopular with the crew. Anyway, I managed to transfer to a, there were two men rooms in a barracks. Uh, and I moved in with Johnny Greer. Um, so you, you said two man rooms in barracks. Had that been built specifically for? Oh yeah, this was a an air force base, and the barracks. I don't know how many rooms there were. There was a corridor. Um, done mainly, I think, for the climate. Uh, we had uh, nets. There was mosquitoes, there was a lot of malaria. Dewey, 
I understood was the shortened form of a native name for swamp of death, malaria. So we had seven, I remember the seven pills, two ascorbic every lunch hour, two ascorbic, that's anti-scurvy, uh, because all our stuff was tinned, uh, two salt, for your sweaty, two vitamin, and one mepocrine, the equivalent of quinine, anti-malaria, so seven for every lunch hour. But our accommodation was good, a uh, nice big mess, nice officer's style. Uh, the beer was very acceptable in the heat, but it ran out very quickly. I think we were allowed four bottles a month or some silly thing. So there was a regular trip from Dewey down, they called it coastal familiarisation, where you went down to Fisherman's Lake, which was a huge uh, lagoon used by Pan Am. During the war, Pan Am was forbidden to land in belligerent territory. So it had to stay neutral by going from the States down to Brazil, across to Liberia, up to Shannon in Ireland. That's as close as Pan Am could get to the UK. They had to take local flights to get across. That's a long trip. So halfway was Fish Lake, as we called it, in Liberia. And Liberia, of course, means the freed country. Freetown and Liberia mean the same thing. Liberia is the country, Freetown is the town, where slaves who wanted to go back to Africa after they were freed in the States, hence Liberia, actually set up by the States. And they were still looking after Liberia. So Pan Am had a base, and we had our little base on the other side of the lake uh, for RAF, RNZAF. There were two squadrons at Dewey, one Kiwi and one RAF. Four squadrons altogether on that coast. Three French in Senegal, Dakar, and another RAF squadron round the corner in Lagos in Nigeria. So four Sunderland squadrons for the anti-U-boat. So there's a Pan Am base in Fish Lake with a good supply of beer 
So every now and then this aircraft, carrying only as much fuel as it needed for the trip, used to go down and fill up with Eretz beer, or the little stubby brown bottle, uh, to get us through the month. A regular trip. Uh, so I started on learning to fly a Sunderland. So you did your conversion on the squadron? Hmm. Wow. Yes. Another chap I met at West Kirby was Gus Valance. And we were two sent. I don't know what he'd done before, but he was the same stage of training as me. And we were both taken out by sea to join 490 Squadron as second pilots. So with the crew, I had to get my first pilot time by doing a, a test, a flight test. So I can't remember just how long it took, but a couple of names went up for testing, and squadron leader Frank Kilgar, who finished up at Teal. He was the training officer. And I had done quite a bit of low, straight and level flying, but my skipper was not helpful uh, at all. Ex-sheep farmer from down the Waikato somewhere and we didn't really get on. So I had done a bare minimum of what I might have done in the way of preparing for this flight test. I'd never done a landing, never done takeoff. And uh, anyway, off we go on this and I had a word with another pilot and he had done landings and takeoffs under his skipper. I had the skeleton crew were my own crew. We were using my aircraft. So they all knew that I had not ever done a takeoff or a landing. I had a word with the other pilot who'd done some of this. I said, for God's sake, will you go first? So we arranged it. And he did the first. And I'm paying a lot of attention. And so when he'd done his test, and we swapped over. Uh, no, he hadn't done his test. Uh, yeah, we we both done 
our tests under the instructor, Kilgour. And I'd managed, you know, okay apparently. And I was not anticipating this at all when Kilgour uh, asked for the oldest lamp and signalled for the launch. And I'd only done, I think, two landings and takeoffs. And he said, right, off you go. And so we were going to do our solo. You know, I was, I was expecting this to be the, the first trading flight. So he goes off on the launch, and here we are. And I'm in the seat. And I know I can still remember turning and looking. You know, we've got our two seats here, and the engine engineer's panel is back there. And Scotty, uh, we had about five POMs in the crew, and our engineer was Scotty, little Scottish chap. And I, I'm there getting ready to do my solo takeoff and landing. And I turned and poor old Scotty, oh. <laughs> he didn't look happy at all. And I wasn't very happy. And off I went, did it. And uh, the other bloke did his, and we both became first pilots. So uh, I've had fun all the way through. <laughs> Tell me about the, your crew then, the, the, who were in your crew? You... Uh, we had a crew of 11. Uh, the skipper, myself, only on long trips did you have the third pilot. A navigator, flight engineer, flight mechanic. They're both POMs. Uh, wireless operator, air gunner, combination, WAGs, two of those. Um, three air gunners. It's supposed to add up to eleven anyway. The old joke was, you know, you know everybody. <laughs> Introductions. Uh, yeah, I think five, five palms and six kiwis. You mentioned the flight mechanic. Did, was he like an assistant to the flight engineer? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Yes, they, they were at the engine and they took took it in turns. Now, on the on the station, 
um, for maintenance, like the ground crew, as, as it would be, or water crew, I guess, and, and, and the, almost, but um, were they all British? Or? They were all British, yeah. 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 And did you have locals as well, local Africans um, on the base? For odd jobbing, yes. We had a, for each room, uh, the, the officer's accommodation, we had a boy, and he was a local. Um, Bobo, I think, was our man. Uh, shilling a day or something like that. And he used to bring uh, popo, papaya, um, for our breakfast with a lime. They were they were sorry that the war ended, you know. Very hard for them to get any money at all. What was the food like in the mess there? Oh, pretty good. Was it locally sourced or? Well, um, no. The, the main problem was that the meat, etc., was all uh, tinned, hence the ascorbic tablets. Um, we always had banana, um, the pawpaw, the mangoes, we, uh, I never got around to trying, there were huge mango trees with a carpet, a certain time of year anyway, a carpet of rotting fruit underneath. Obviously the natives did weren't interested, and we ne we never thought of mango as being worthwhile. Okay. Pawpaw we knew about, but it was mango was just looked on as rubbish. Wow! The job of flying the Sunderland technically. Um, were you always busy when you're flying, or could you just set a course? Not, not really, no. Oh no, it was getting things right and uh, watching your course and so on. No automatic pilot, of course. So you were watching all the time. And were you also, as the pilot, were you also concentrating on looking for shipping as well? Were you having to be an eye on the oh, sky? Oh yes, that, that was part of the job. Yep. The whole crew was supposed to be doing that. And, and we, ne we never saw a, a U-boat. Right. I was from February through to May and never a sighting. What about shipping? Did you used to see much shipping? Oh yes, there was quite a bit of shipping up and down that coast. That's why the U-boats had come down. So would you have they, to go? Would you have to go down and check out every ship just to make sure? No. We were flying fairly low, uh, a couple of thousand feet, something like that. So you get a fair idea. I don't remember sort of swooping down. I guess you never got to fly inland 
you know, over land, you wouldn't do that. Very, very little. Depending on how you had to land a place like Bathurst and you're obviously on the coast. And our regular trip was up to Bathurst in Gambia. Uh, about an eight hour job I think it was. He in there. My memory is but I didn't on the technical side I didn't pay much attention to that either. But uh, I just went into Fisherman's Lake, of course, every now and then. And did you do uh, sort of semi-regular uh, practices of, of bombing or anything like that to keep your eye on? No. Um, I don't remember those at all. I knew we had racks and DC's depth charges on board. There were racks under the wing mm -hmm. and a pull down, uh, like a door thing, uh, if you were going to use them. But we, we never got around to it. So you never dropped any bombs at no. all? Okay. Um, what about air gunnery? Did you ever do any flights where the gunners were having a practice? No, I don't remember any any air gunning. Wow. So each flight was fairly boring then, I guess. Mm. Indeed it was. The regular trip, but every now and then, the Navy, of course, were the ones who first got the any uh, notice of U-boat. And we were there to respond to the Navy's requirements, understood. I think there were only about three occasions I remember where we changed and did something under the uh, orders or requests of the Navy. Um, the first one, I think, was that the Navy believed there were two U-boats going north. We did our trip up to the usual day job up to Bathurst. No sighting. Navy asked us to I would say required us, I guess, to go north next day. So we did our search, again no sighting, and went into Dakar in Senegal, the Free French, and stayed overnight in the French officers mess. Quite interesting. And then they asked us to go north again. So on the third day, we are up from Dakar to a place called Port Etienne, which was simply a bay, not a real port, uh, 
on the edge of the Sahara Desert. It would be Mauritania rather than Morocco, I think. I think Mauritania, Morocco on that coast. But desert right down to the, to the shore. And off there, um, there was a, an Arab encampment, uh, a small RAF post, a desalination plant, no water, a big uh, hangar-like building for the desalination uh, and a French Foreign Legion outpost. But no jetty or anything like that. So And did you did you stop the night there or? We stayed the night, yes. On board. And they had slept slept on board. Did they have fuel there for you or mm -hmm. did they have fuel there for you or uh, there would be fuel, yes. Yeah. Um there would have had to be the, a launch, a jetty, uh, at the RAF, RAF. Yeah. A bit vague about it. Yeah. So that was a, a bit unusual. Another one that was special they believed that U-boats were going out from the coast toward Ascension Island, it sits off the coast there, more or less on the equator, and they asked us to do the middle box of a search area from the African coast to Ascension split up into three divisions. Off land they used, they had Wimpies, Wellingtons uh, for the short term. Uh, we were asked to do the center box and the outer box was done by the big Is it liberators? Liberators? Liberators. Liberators from the Azores. And I wondered if Bruce Miller, I understood he'd been sent to the Azores. And I wondered if he was on that Liberator. So that was a special one, a different one that we did. A box search, they called it. And that drives the navigator mad. Particularly with the equator running through. Right. Plus becomes a minus and so on. Right. 
that's about all the special assignments we had. So how many aircraft were on the squadron? We had eight. Um, all Mark 3s. The new Mark 5 came in with the Pratt & Whitney engines. We had Bristol Pegasus engines. Uh, the last Bristol Pegasus new engine was made in 1940, we were told. And here we are five years later using reconditioned engines and so on. And the old story was you're lucky to come back with four still going. You know. But it was one Mark V. Our, one of our crews went to UK and came back with the, with the Mark V Sunderland. Did you ever get to fly that one? No. No, that was that, that crew, that particular crew owned it. And the, remember the arrival, we knew what had happened, we had all the news, uh, knew he was coming and flying a, a Mark V. So we're all out to, to see his arrival. And he beat up Dewey, the station, with two engines feathered on one wing. That's that's what a, the Pratt and Whitney's could do. We were going round like that, you know. <laughs> However, so that was an unusual moment. So, so there were um, there were eight aircraft. So were there eight crews as well on uh, the yes, squadron? Yes. And you didn't have any extra crews that rotated around, or no, no. We we had a. It'll be in there. Um, I can't remember just how many days it was between our leaves. Something like a week uh, before we went on leave. And uh, and at that time we just took it in turns to do the daily trip. Right. And at that time, when when you guys weren't flying, when you were on leave, your aircraft would probably be doing its servicing or something. Yeah. So that. Um, It'll be ready for you to come back. It was back. always a DI, yes. So the, um, I know that earlier in the war when the squadron had the Catalinas, each Catalina in 490 Squadron had its own name. Yes. Uh, like Canterbury, I think they're all provinces. Mm -hmm. did, did the Sunderlands have names as well? No, we, we, we were just X. We had a big X on the side. So I know we had a J and a Y and so on. Uh, there was a V. Uh, that's that's V there. Oh, yeah. um, that's after the end of the war, and we were on our coastal familiarisation. We were fortunate that we were next to do that, and this became a victory trip. Um, we were going to go into um, Abidjan on the Ivory Coast and Lagos and so on and so the skipper arranged to borrow V obviously ah, yes. instead of flying X but normally you 
stayed with your aircraft. Right. So did your crew have a nickname for the aircraft, even if it wasn't painted on it? Did you call it a nickname? No, just known as X. Right. Now I can't remember any particular name. Did you have any, um, was there a squadron mascot or, or, or did they have a dog or anything like that? A lot of the squadrons would have the a no. mascot pet or... Nothing along that line. Um, Gary, Gary's friend made a, um, a model and did it very nicely and with the crest and he's got it over there. Oh, right. uh, it's got a Maori uh, motto. The, the, the Maori motto was Tanifa in the sky. Brilliant. Hmm. Yeah. So if you wanted to, to get that, Gary's got that, right, yeah. the insignia right, right. of the squadron. Okay. But I don't remember any, uh, no, we certainly didn't have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about, um, what was the squadron's, um, uh, like the, was there a really good esprit de corps or, you know, were, did it, oh, yeah. and was there a really, like, did it have a real New Zealand feeling about the squadron, like a lot of the New Zealand squadrons did? They, or was it, was there stiff upper lip RAF kind of stuff going on, or was it laid back New Zealand? Um, we shared the officers' best, of course, with the RAF officers, yep. and they provided the administration and so on as well. So, the Kiwis were really outnumbered. We didn't feel that. But it wasn't a wild New Zealand uh, mess, you know. We all got on fine. But there wasn't a strong uh, Kiwi feel about the mess for the same reason. Um, I know I, I was the only uh, officer in the officers team. We had a, a soccer competition, played on clay in the heat, but they were all, oh this was not only officers, this was men and officers. Not many officers would be playing soccer, and certainly no Kiwis. But I played with the Pommy team. That was a bit of fun. Yeah. In the mess, uh, was it a bit like the British RAF messes, uh, where they had uh, particular mess games and mess rules? Was it very RAF oriented like that, or? bit casual about that sort of thing, I think. I don't remember anything specific. You didn't have to pass the port to the left and all the old... Uh, I don't remember that. Yeah. No, pretty laid back. Okay. I think there was just a the mix there. 
would probably contribute to the casual style. And when you when you got leave, where did you go? Where, uh... Into Freetown, the only place to go. What was it like? Crummy. Um, corrugated iron everywhere. What I noticed particularly when you got, went to into Dakar or Abidjan, the contrast between what the French did in their colonies compared with the English. In Dakar particularly, wide streets, trees, parks. I remember one park, now that was in Côte d'Ivoire, uh, a park in Abidjan, the Ivory Coast, beautiful park, beautiful building. I went in a complete gymnasium in Abidjan. There was an outdoor theatre, cinema rather, um, with open air city. Nothing like that in Freetown. Nothing at all. In Dakar, broad streets, trees, parks, etc. And you get the impression that the the French were living there. That never seemed to be the case in Freetown. You had men doing their three years and then back to the UK. A real very obvious contrast. What do you think was the most interesting place that you visited in Africa then? What's the place that stands out the most in your mind? Mm. Abidjan, I guess. Although we're only over there, there overnight. We spent a bit more time in Lagos, which was not quite as crummy as Freetown. A bigger place. Dakar again, we were only there overnight but very impressed. I enjoyed the hills. Dewey was not a pleasant spot down on the river. Mangroves, that was about it. But when they closed Dewey down, we were sent up to officers quarters in I think they called it Waterloo uh, an army camp up in the hills and that was a very pleasant area Sierra Leone Lion Mountain not many mountains on that coast so I guess that 
because we spent I can't remember how long exactly just waiting for a boat until that offer of the, the three tickets three seats came up where Dewey was uh, you said it was a mosquito infested swamp type area did you have crocodiles and other snakes or? Um, not that I remember we certainly didn't go swimming in the river on our day off we went to Momo Beach I think they called it I've got photos there of Johnny Greer and myself and others swimming to a, a nice beach but not in the river down the coast Did you come across any uh, any exotic wildlife at all there, or was there anything that stood out? Very little. Pat, the skipper, was mad with his camera, and the butterfly death, and he used to annoy us as we were in the truck heading for our leave a few hours in Freetown and he'd spot he was looking for butterflies so he stopped the car with a, a brown skinned driver and off he'd go with his butterfly death while we sat there waiting for him to he didn't make himself popular that way. <laughs> no, but not not didn't get into any sort of jungle or anything like that. Had the odd drink in Freetown. Uh, they had connections with South Africa, of course, and brandy was popular. Brandy and ginger was, I think, the favourite drink. I remember getting bottles of whiskey to take home, to take to UK when we finally left on that aircraft. But not much, not much to do in Freetown. But uh, relax and have a snack and a few drinks. What happened when the war in Europe finished? What, what was the feeling in the squadron? Well, let's get home. And then came the sink all Mark Threes. But on the victory trip, I remember we were invited to a victory ball. So we got ourselves togged up in the light, you know, the khaki style, um, and off to the ball. But 
the French, these, the people who were there were, they were Vichy. Right. The Vichy government was running the administration and these, so these people were under the Vichy. But it goes back before the war, centuries, that the French and the English are a bit like that. So when we were at this ball, we'd hopeful to be dancing with these young French girls, but almost every one of them would have a guardian, a mother, aunt, whatever, and we'd go and ask for a dance, and the elderly of the pair would say, tout à l'heure, tout à l'heure, later, later. We got the message, and after an hour or so, we all walked out. And you mentioned about sinking the, the Sunderlands. The oh, yes. Tell me about that. Well, everybody, particularly the ground crew, of course, were mad keen as soon as the war was over. Let's get home. They worked like mad on the aircraft. Every aircraft was ready to fly to UK. And suddenly we get from London, sink all Mark III's. England was just a rubbish heap of military equipment. They didn't want a whole stack of Mark III Sunderlands. Shorts, who made them after the war, didn't want a whole lot of second hands. Okay, that made sense. But you can imagine how we felt. Still, you do as you're told. They stripped the aircraft of this and that. And finally, it was our turn. And I've got photos there that you could copy if you like of us being towed out, I believe seven miles beyond the continental shelf for the deep water. They issued us with axes. And I helped the crew chop holes in X. And I've got photos I took from the launch. That X went down. And the same for all the other Mark III's. Each crew did their own. Hmm. It must have been a sad moment. It was. And made us quite angry. But then we sat around waiting for a boat. Stranded. And then I got lucky. Uh, we suddenly got an offer of three seats in a DC-3. The personal aircraft of the GOC General Officer Commanding West Africa. Somehow he got himself in England and his aircraft was 
on the coast and going back to catch up with him. So there must have been about 30 of us officers up at the camp and we cut the cards for the three seats. I got one. Uh, Bluey Williams, bit of a character, from the other pilots, second pilots I think. Uh, red hair, in Bluey. And Errol Taylor, another chap that I didn't really know. And we were the three. The skipper on this DC-3 was squadron leader Leroyd VC, a VC from Dortmund Ems Canal, like the dam busters. Yes. Uh, every time I tell this story, which isn't very often, uh, I try to remember the name of his sister, who was a very well-known actress, and I can't remember. But he was a bit of a character. He'd done two tours of bombers, then in transport, and had got this sort of plum job. Bit of a wild man. His landings and takeoffs were you had your fingers crossed, especially at Gibraltar. But. Oh, he was a bit of fun, and we landed at Agadir in Morocco, uh, just for refueling. Then on to Gibraltar, had a day there, overnight, and then on to Hendon. So that was the end of that. Okay. Did you keep in touch with? Um any of your crew after the war? Did you ever meet up again? Um, yes. Patterson turned up in retirement in Tauranga while I was at Tauranga College and I spent time with him. Uh, Johnny Greer was from Invercargill. So when I got that job down at Otago Boys, I got in touch and we went down, had a holiday with them, and then we both, the two families, went off and had a holiday in Queenstown. Uh, he, his wife, he was a grocer, uh, but his wife had a, a mental problem, uh, and he gave that away and went into the church, and he became canon. Greer went right up through the priesthood uh, and I kept in touch with him and he had a, a cousin I think it was who lived in Pakaraga quite close to us when we were we were 12 years in Pakaraga and I saw him a couple of times when he came up from New Plymouth. Right. But the the joke with him, of course, was that 
he's still showing people the way to go. <laughs> the navigator. And the one of the uh, air gunners, Jock Woodward, uh, I hadn't kept in touch with him, but I saw this in the paper. I've got friends I arrange reunions with, and for that reason I always go through the funeral notices in the Herald, and I picked this Jock Woodward, uh, would be the one I knew, and I went to his funeral on the shore, but I didn't know that he was there. But I guess you're probably the last of the crew now. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Stan. We'll probably uh, finish it there because we've done two and a, what almost two and a half hours. <laughs> there's a lot. There's, there's some great. As long stories. as you've got something that you were absolutely happy with. Loads, okay. loads there. It's, it's really good. good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.